You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week is Kirsty McKenzie, former Young Entrepreneur of the Year, CEO and founder of iMultiply, a finance and recruitment executive search specialist to entrepreneurs and growing SMEs. She has had to learn the highs and lows of getting a startup off the ground and scaling a business across multiple cities. So welcome, Kirsty. Hello, Vicky. How are you doing? Good. Lovely sunny day for once in Glasgow, which is a nice thing. Um, I'm going to keep it to one question this week. Because although it has been asked by a very early stage founder, it's the question that haunts you throughout your life as a CEO and as a founder. And so I'd like us to circle back around and apply it to later stage startups as well. And this founder asks, to get my startup really moving, I now need to build a core team. Resources are very limited. So where do I start? Where do I find people? How do I know if they're the right people? And how do I compensate them? So not a very big question for you there, Um, and something I'm sure you've had to tackle both as a founder and also as you've worked with uh, entrepreneurs, I assume. Yes, well, it's been an interesting journey, um, full of challenges, and yeah, I guess I'm coming at this question with two hats on, but um, I I founded iMultiply in 2012, so it's in its sixth year this year, and um, I'm the sole founder. And I'd worked for a a large multinational recruitment business and realised that uh, uh, recruitment has a very mixed reputation, let's put it that way. Um, (laughs) So I I wrote down the reasons people like using recruitment companies and a list of reasons people don't like using recruitment companies. Um, And I was determined to build a scalable business, which kept the good things, the the things people liked about recruiters and tackled some of the not so positive things um, and that's that's what I've done we're now a team of 18 got an office in Edinburgh Glasgow and Belfast which is our, our latest office and we work predominantly with other entrepreneurial businesses or businesses with ambition um, as well as charities looking to hire top talent and that tends to be within the finance or the executive sphere so I guess as you said I've got experience with a lot of our customers that are growing teams and that's where we come in to help them. But actually, I've grown a team myself and I'm continuing to scale the business and that's been very interesting and challenging and yeah. I guess I'd like to pack up a question with that hat on. And that's why you got an invitation to join the Agony Arm podcast because uh, if you hadn't done that, <laughs> you wouldn't have done. Um, so it's really interesting because it does it feel like an extra pressure given that this is your world? Did it feel like an extra pressure to try to get the team right first time? Um, I don't know anybody that has, but um, how was it for you when you first started? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things I'm happy to admit, and that's that I don't, I've not got it right every single time, even though it's my job to do that for, for others. But I have to recognise that you're not going to get it right every single time. So I haven't, and I don't get it right every single time for my customers, you know, businesses we deal with. And that's just the, the nature of dealing with, with people. And I think 
it's okay to recognise that, that that's that is acceptable because my first hire into the business didn't work out and I had to actually let them go after about nine, ten weeks. And that's pretty gutting when you've just set up and you're really determined to create a team and you've made your first hire, which you're celebrating. And then sort of nine weeks later, you're <laughs> setting up at night thinking, how did that go so wrong? And, and actually, well, to be fair um, to my first hire as well, I should point out that it wasn't their fault that it didn't work out. Actually, I had underestimated the amount of uh, training that they would require. And I knew they needed training because I couldn't persuade anyone to join me early on because it was so high risk for a lot of people that I thought, well, I'll take someone on that doesn't have all the skills and I can train them. But it did not take into account the, the time commitment of that whilst I was still trying to bring in our first bits of revenue. So I just want to point out it wasn't actually their doing. It was uh, it was my poor recognition of uh, really the skill set that I needed at that time. There's about three things that I would like to unpack in there. I'll do them in reverse order. You, you kind of saying it wasn't their fault it wasn't about them I think that is such an important thing for a founder CEO hirer to recognize almost always when you get your hiring wrong it's it's down to you not the person and you need to look carefully at what you did and not keep replicating that I think that is a really important thing to recognize the second thing in there is that you're touching on the difference essentially between a co-founder and an employee. And I think it would be interesting to come back to that. And the third thing is this thing about um, experience and the compromise, and it is a compromise, that you often make for, I can't afford this person, nobody who's really experienced wants to join me as a co-founder, I can't find what I need. So I'll take somebody much more junior and it will be fine. They'll pick it up in no time. Not understanding what you've just let your, yourself and them in for. And it's definitely one of the things this time around as I've approached building a founding team and thinking about what my first set of employees will look like. They're not going to be inexperienced people. I put a brief out on working startups with literally... Um, the worst brief ever and it was you'll hate working with me this is going to be a nightmare it probably isn't even going to work there's going to be no money in it and I don't even want to talk to you I've not done it twice already but I literally do not apply for this job and um, for that exact reason so it's interesting that that you kind of feel that even as a specialist you, you didn't get it right but there's something important there I guess you were a, a sole founder yeah and what were you doing? Were you going out looking for a co-founder and then compromised? Or were you from day one looking consciously for an employee? I wasn't looking for a co-founder. So I was looking to hire a team of employees with, with a view of then recognising individuals that had come in early on um, and rewarding them with options in the business once they've been in and helped grow the business. And that's what we've done. 
And I think that's really important. And I think what I shall say as, as editor and entrepreneur, Agony Aunt here, we'll do a whole different episode on finding the perfect co-founder and rewarding that because we can't have this conversation. This is such a huge conversation. We can't muddle up the two. And I think the person asking the question is very consciously coming from the same place as you, Kirsty, in that uh, they were saying, you know, how do I build out this first team? And how do I reward yeah. them? So, I mean, what are your thoughts? Where do you start? Especially when you're kind of doing this for the first time, you maybe have just got a tiny bit of investment or you've won a few prizes or something. You've got enough to be thinking about this as a possibility, but you don't know where you're starting. Yeah, and I think there's a few a few ways to answer that. I think, first of all, recognizing that it is a challenge and it's going to be a challenge. So you don't beat yourself up too much if it doesn't happen as quickly as you were you're hoping. is quite a healthy thing to do. And, and to recognize that people are likely to view you as a risk. So how are you going to attract someone with the right skills if they're in a stable, secure position um, when that's not necessarily what you're offering? So I was thinking back to, I guess, what I did. And as I say, not everything I did worked out well, but the things that, that did work out well, I'll share those bits with you. Early on, I got a big sort of industry name behind me. As a, as a, and offered them some shares, offered them to buy, buy some shares, which they did. And I guess that really helped because it gave the business, even though the business was just me, a bit more kudos. And that for people then helped reduce the risk. And then a bit further on in, in the business, I, I did set up a board of advisors or an advisory panel, not, not a board, I should use advisory mm. panel. An advisory panel is a great thing, uh, super helpful for being gaps in your knowledge and also for visibility. Absolutely. So that helped to fill in some gaps, as you say, but also having some good names behind the business then created a little bit more interest from people that I would potentially want to hire. So that was sort of option number one or what I did first, which really helped. And then I guess I did sit down and think, right, what do I actually really need? Like what skill sets do I really need? And also what am I really clear on what my values are and and what my business values are? Um, Because because then that's really what I'm looking for. Because I see a lot of people trying to hire um, in early stage businesses and actually they don't really know what the job is. And I think it sounds really simple, but maybe it's okay to recognize that it is a broad job because quite often when you're very early stage, the role is going to be quite broad because it's kind of a, you know, all hands to the pump, roll your sleeves up. But you still need to be clear on what the transferable skills are that you you require and, and people don't have to do that as an exercise they just have a general idea in their head and I would encourage people to actually write it down and be clear and that's a really good point because that's where that maps with those mistakes you often make when you bring in somebody too inexperienced is you don't know what you want but you need somebody that hits the ground running and this poor person starts on day one and you kind of turn around to them say, you know you give them two hour briefing and say great get on with transforming my business <laughs> and they sort of look at you like a rabbit in the headlight. And that is a real failure of, of planning, I think, on your part. I, I was really super guilty of this. I mean, I used to kind of say, if I knew how to do the job, I'd be doing it. So I brought you in because I don't know how to do it. So please get on with it. Which works at a certain level of experience where you've got 
you know, maybe that advisory panel level of experience, or you've got somebody who's been around the block a few times, but that's actually, in retrospect, as I look back, an overwhelming, slightly cruel thing to do to somebody who's a recent graduate um, and doesn't doesn't have the fully developed tool set to do that yet. Yeah, yeah. And you've got things, you've got to be realistic, don't you? And I think, as you say, you've used graduates and that's where a lot of very early stage businesses get some talent is out of the universities because they've got good career services or, um, you know, postgraduates. But you do have to be realistic about what these people can, can bring. And, and I do appreciate that there is a big challenge because I had it versus what you actually need compared to what you can well, what you can attract and also what can you pay because compensation and remuneration is you know a big, a big attraction for a lot of people and if you're pre-revenue you know the likelihood is you're not going to be able to pay market rate to attract the skills that you actually need and I see this time and time again and I guess I've got a couple of thoughts on it and one is if you're going through fundraising rounds actually just build in a market rate you know the market rate value people that you need because i see it from time like time and time again people don't actually build in enough money for for the skills and experience that they need whereas i would argue that they they should and they can justify that yeah that's a really good point because that that ties in with to ask you know if you're going into a funding round whether that's something that edge that we talked about a few weeks ago which is a competitive fund or whether that's actually angel investment funding Ask for enough money. You need to ask for more money because you need, you, you can't pay people and you can't pay yourself, you know, pre-revenue subsistence wages for very long. Your business isn't going to work. So one of the reasons you need to ask for more money is because your costs are going to be higher, particularly your people costs and everything on top of that. So it's, it is a really important point actually about learning how to, to price that and look around at existing jobs, not startup jobs, but real jobs, your competitors for that talent, see what they're paying. Yeah, because if you're wanting someone that's been there and done it, you know, they are going to have higher expectations in terms of compensation. The, the flip side is you you know, really need to think about what are the benefits of working for you. So then sell the benefits of a startup or sell the benefits of a scaling business, you know, the excitement, the, the broad exposure, the challenge, the culture, the flexibility, you know, what, what are your values? I think if you can package that together nicely, then you aren't purely competing on salary or, or remuneration, which I think is important that that's not the only thing you're competing on. Um, but then it becomes a whole package. Yeah, and definitely. And I, th- I personally tend to find that if somebody is primarily motivated by money and the package, this isn't the right place yeah. for them. You know, working with me is not the right place for, for that. Doesn't mean to say I would, I don't pay fairly but it means that you know the va- just the values aren't aligned i want somebody who if i had to say i'm really really sorry we are in a really difficult position i can get us out of it but i can't pay us this month that they would be annoyed with me rightly so but would still show up for work and would still help us work through it yeah. it's a big ask but and i've never actually I had to ask that. I don't think I've ever had to ask my team that. But I want to know that if I did ask it, they'd be there. And as I look back at some of my wrong hires, they wouldn't have done. Um, and now that's not a failing on their part. They're, you know, it's realistic. 
but that perhaps they shouldn't have been in the startup to start with. Yeah, that's, it's interesting because when I was um, three years in, I introduced asking value-based questions at interviews when we were hiring for ourselves um, and asking people. We actually asked people to bring in an item or an image that represent our three values and how they've demonstrated their values. Um, because I had a similar experience, you know, I had a few people in early on that I thought oh, they're just would they do that or would they do the right thing when no one was looking? And and now we've we've made it really heavy, you know, heavy part of our recruitment process to try and uh, take those people out early on so we don't hire them. <laughs> yeah, and that's the interesting thing because one of the things that the person has asked in this question is where do I start? Where do I find people? And how do I know if they're the right people? But where you find people at the beginning is is always a challenge because you know you you are restricted in a lot of ways to networks that you yeah. um, directly or indirectly touch. But I'm assuming you know you, I'm assuming you make a lot of effort to be actively out there networking. I certainly do and continue to do that. Um, any thoughts or advice on? On the other piece of that, almost, is like where you look for people, especially at the very beginning when, you know, throwing money at it just isn't yeah. an option. I think the reality is right at the start, like I did it as well, it is network and it's friends of friends or ex-colleagues. And um, So my second hire was a, an ex-colleague who's still with me and um, the next one was a friend of a friend and she's still with the business. So really pushing it out to... So the network is key. There is a huge downside, of course, to using a network later on, and, and that's that you tend, to, um, you tend to hang out and associate with people in your own image. That's a sort of human nature thing. And um, actually using your own network to recruit isn't always the best method if you're looking for a diverse team. And we all know the, the benefits of having a diverse team. So I would actually argue that as you grow as a business, Using your network isn't necessarily the best the best method, but when you start, you have limited options, and you know if people are viewing you as a risk, but kind of know of you, or are recommended to you, um, or you're recommended to them, then there's a higher chance of them at least being interested <laughs> interested in the job. So, where else would you look? You know, networks one and universities we've touched on, but they, again, they do have a very good career service, so that's that's two. And then there is, you know, good old social media, and that doesn't cost money, just time. And this is why I would argue that it's really beneficial to think about what you're offering as part of the role and the experience and the culture of working with you. Because if you can package that up and articulate that in a nice way online, there's no reason why you can't actually push that through social media networks. Definitely. Uh, that's, that's super good advice. Do you have any thoughts or experience on on the I found a great person who I really like and now I'm going to try to find some way to ram my business needs to let me <laughs> work with this person? Is that something? Mean, I don't know if you've done that. I've done that. Uh, well, I've done that, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm thinking, I think I really think they've got a lot to offer, but I can't quite think where they fit in just now and I've not she got the budget for them either. Well, they must be part of the business. And that is actually where my advisory panels come in really, really well. So I've then roped these individuals into a, a quarterly, literally a quarterly meeting. But the, the agreement is, you know, if I've got any questions at any point, I need a coffee or want to phone them, then I can do that whenever. And then as part of the quarterly 
meeting, I usually take one question, a business challenge or a business idea to them and we have a two and a half hour brainstorming session. So that's how I've kind of roped people in. Because <laughs> I, I think that's a really good way of doing it because I think it can be, it, it's a really big risk when you do that in a super early stage business because you just can't afford to, you can't afford to carry the cost and the energy and the time of this person that you haven't figured out what they're good for yet, but you know you love them. Um, <laughs> it's, but it's quite tempting to do. And I, it's really hit and miss as well, whether it, whether it works or not. It's kind of like, I wish I could put you on ice for two years because my, when my plan is panned out, it's going to be brilliant. But actually the, the, the advisory panel is a great way of doing that. I want to keep you close. I want to keep learning whether you're as great as I think you are. Um, keep in touch, keep you here. And maybe there's going to be a moment when I've figured out precisely how this is all going to work. Yeah, that, that's the key is keep them, keep them close and have an excuse to speak regularly so that when that time is actually right, then there might be an opportunity something you can both work out to work together. So we've sort of talked about team version one, which is really about, I think what you're saying is boosting your attractiveness, de-risking yourself, really thinking very, very clearly about the skills you need, uh, the type, you know, what your values are, and then going out and doing the best you can to attract people who match to that and compensating them as best you can um, to offset that a little bit. What about sort of team version two, three, as you start to grow? Maybe you've got a grant. Maybe you've got your first round of investment. It's, it starts to change, doesn't it? <laughs> From my experience. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's different pressures at different times of the business journey. And sometimes that means that you need different people um, at different stages and and some people that were right early on might actually not be right um, as the business grows or, or they might be if they, if they can grow with the business but I try and uh, tell my team all the time that the, the only constant in the business is change and if they're not willing to change and develop there might be a time where the business actually outgrows them and as, the, as businesses develop you do find that you need different different skill sets and different perspectives but some things don't change though and I think you know ultimately I think that someone who recognizes you know how entrepreneurial businesses are different and a different culture from sort of the corporate world is useful at uh, any stage but I guess as the business grows roles sometimes tend not to be as broad and you can start getting specialists within within the roles and that's when it's a good time to bring in those specialists. And we've, we've gone through that journey where people's roles were just far too broad. And then that, that's not sustainable because as the business grows, you realize someone's got about five hats on and can't mm-hmm. possibly do that. Um, and that, that's when we can start bringing in specialists and also bring in people um, for the size that we want to be, not necessarily the size that we are now. I'm looking at what people can bring that have worked for slightly bigger businesses, but still understand the entrepreneurial nature of of the business. So it is it is different. It's a really important part: the never losing 
never losing sight of those your values as an entrepreneur and what your entrepreneurial business looks like. Yours will look different to mine, will look different to somebody else's. That doesn't matter, but you, you need to keep your your values super close in that hiring process. Otherwise, I, I think it's really hard to understand the different worldviews and experiences and attitude to work that somebody who's only ever worked in a corporate or only ever worked in, in a big organization has versus you. I'm sure there is the odd person who can make the leap, but perhaps, as you said, the advisory panel is, is the place to to learn whether they can rather than hiring them in because it's such it's such a gulf. Um, the other thing you, you mentioned... And I've had experience of this, and I think it's probably some of the most difficult letting goes I've I've had to do with hires, is when you know some of those, particularly the early stage ones, are at the limit of their growth within the business. We, we've kind of outgrown them, and also they've outgrown everything that they can learn and take from that business. And be to you know they need to move on as well. And I recognized some of that very well, and I didn't recognize it in others. And I think perhaps one of my weakest decisions around hiring was allowing somebody who, now I look back, was probably out of their depth and had probably maxed out in their own growth in a way to be too involved in the technical hiring that that, that team needed. And I didn't recognize enough that that person was really perhaps scared or perhaps putting a block to letting anybody into that team who was more special. They'd, be, they'd come in as a generalist, as you do at the very beginning, but they were very, very reluctant to let anybody pass the door that was specialist or bringing some skills in that they didn't have. Now, that's inexperience, but also that can be a super super dangerous thing in in a growing company because you're not getting the introduction of new skill sets that you need have, have you seen that uh, either in your own business or in or in other businesses and have you got any advice for sort of founders that that are hitting that i mean i, I see i do see it all the time in um in my network and i've had it in my own business and sometimes i think oh crikey i should have i should have recognized that much sooner and actually, one thing I've I've learned, but I'm still not that good at it, is it's, it's the expression of sort of fail fast. If someone's not working out, whether it's you know they're doing or whether it's just the business outgrown them, you need to recognise that as quickly as you can and either take steps to solve it and work with them to change that, or you need to part ways. And actually, you touched on it there. Parting ways with people um, can actually be really positive for both parties. Because I think there's a feeling from sort of founders of guilt sometimes of, oh, crikey, you know, should I let them go? Shouldn't I? Will it work out? When actually, not only might it be the best thing for the business, but it might be probably the best thing for that individual if they if they were struggling in that role, potentially. Um, I'm not saying anyone that's struggling in the role, you should just let go because you might want to work with them first. But I guess what I'm saying is make a decision about it and a plan about it quickly and then act, act fast. And I, I do see that, you know, in a lot of the, the customer base that we, we deal with as well. And especially when we're putting teams in place, if they've already had a couple of people um, within a team and then they're all of a sudden looking to you know, double the size of that team, that's a big change to the people that are already in the business. And 
people don't like change, so you know, uh, as a general rule, so there can be quite a bit of resistance. And you know, you just got to be clear with people when you're growing the team what the impact is going to be for for them and why the change is happening. Um, because otherwise it can be quite messy and you can bring in new people that don't then feel welcomed or they're not given the opportunity to do that, the job they were brought in to do. And actually then that's when sometimes new hires don't work out and it's not actually the, the fault, uh, the new hire wasn't at fault. It was that your business and your team weren't ready for them or weren't ready to welcome them in. And that's really interesting because you kind of hit this point, which is, the team that regard them or the people that regard themselves as the original people, and they may not actually be original people, but in, in the narrative of the company, you know, they've been there through the first investment round or they've been there when you nearly ran out of money and all of this kind of stuff. And they're the originals. And then you, you, you raise significantly more money and suddenly you're not hiring one person at a time and thinking, do they sit with this culture and will they drop into our, our original, you know, version of, culture version 1.0, you're suddenly hiring multiple people. You might be hiring, as you say, teams at a time. And I've seen people who are growing at such a rate where, you know, they're literally hiring 50 people at a time. And that's such a massive, massive challenge. I know I didn't get it right, although I was, you know, with my last company was never at the point where I was trying to go out and hire hire. 30, 50 people, but you know, I know people that are doing that we, we really are when you've suddenly hit the right to call yourself a scale up as opposed to a startup and you're growing at this phenomenal rate. How do you prep yourself for that? Can you prep yourself for that? Or do you just kind of live through it and try to stop the wheels falling off? <laughs> I think actually the reality, if you're the founder, you've probably either consciously or subconsciously prepped yourself in a way. And actually, it'll be your team that are behind. Because I think I find that quite often, and I'm guilty of it as well, is you're, you know, as a founder, your brain's moved on massively and you're like 10 steps ahead of actually everyone else because you've been thinking about it constantly, whereas maybe the rest of the team haven't. And actually, yeah. I've got to remind myself all the time, have I communicated this? Have I told people we're, we're, we're now looking for this role um, and that we're going to you know, hire a couple of people here? Or actually... Do I need to communicate it? Are they going to be happy with? Because I'll I'll just come in and say to the team, "Oh, we're opening uh, we're opening Belfast now," and everyone's like, "Oh, what?" You know, and I go, "Oh, yeah, sugar." I in my head knew I was looking at a third location. They didn't know that, <laughs> so yeah. so I think um, you do have to remind yourself, you know, that your brain might be racing, but what do the rest of the, what do the rest of the team know, and are your advisors aware? Not that your, your advisors have to be aware of everything, but I think it's a good, um, useful tool to be able to speak through your thoughts and then be asked challenging questions because that will also help you, you know, work through your thoughts um, rather than just sometimes racing ahead and doing things with maybe not totally thinking them through. That's maybe just me, though. But I do know a lot of founders that are like... No, that's super true. I mean, I think I'm like that. Everybody I come across is like that. And it's a point that Mark Logan was making, I think, episode 17. We spend far too much talking about the instant ter- communicating, instant-term tactical decisions, and we don't spend anywhere near enough time talking about the big strategy and reinforcing the strategy to our teams. So we've got all of this stuff going on in our head and we know why it makes sense, but we haven't actually, and we might have spent weeks talking about it with the board 
or our advisors or our investors and all of that kind of thing, but we haven't actually invested the time talking about it with the team. So to them, it's news to them. They're still processing, oh, we're going to op- open a Belfast F's office is the perfect example. And I've done stuff like this. Oh, yeah, we're going to do this thing. And everybody's like, what? <laughs> You know, what does this mean for me, actually, is probably what people are thinking. You know, does this improve my life? Does this make my life worse? Does this make my work harder? Does this, you know, ha- what does this mean for me? And you're off in a totally other place. And yeah. um, Whereas actually, and I, I loved his advice, which is if you keep reinforcing the strategy and you spend more time talking about strategy than you do anything else, then it will make sense. And then there will be context to that and people will be more comfortable in that they have some degree of agency and self-determination over their own fate in your organization. And I think it's a really, really good point. So the other way to help you find and attract top talent would be to use a recruitment business. Of course, there is a cost involved, so it might not be feasible uh, if you're very early stage or pre-revenue. I run a recruitment business, so of course I'm going to say there is a huge advantage into using a recruitment company, but I I do truly believe it. Um, But what I would say is you should use a specialist um, recruiter um, that specialises on the skill set that you're looking for. They'll help you find people that you wouldn't be able to attract um, or find necessarily through your own network. And although there is a cost, you know, time cost money and by doing something yourself can therefore be costly if it's taking you off and um, running the business. I actually use recruitment companies to help I multiply to recruit individuals for I multiply. So we recruited our marketing manager through a specialist marketing recruitment business and we recruit recruitment consultants through specialist recruitment consultant businesses that, that specialise purely in finding recruitment consultants. So it sounds, that might sound a bit crazy given that I, I run recruitment, our recruitment business, but it's not at all because I want to spend my time looking at the direction of iMultiply, developing the team, servicing my customers. I don't want to spend my time trying to find out who's who when it comes to marketing, for example. So to me, paying a recruitment company to find my marketing manager was very good value. And I ended up finding someone that I would not have been able to, to find through my own network. So the best time to engage a recruitment company is probably early on, because actually you can just have a conversation about the costs, about the expectations. And it doesn't mean you then need to necessarily engage with that recruiter, but having a couple of conversations early on might prove useful and you might if nothing else get some tips from that recruiter on um, hiring your hiring process which usually people are happy to give some advice free of charge I mean I certainly would be if you wanted to phone me and ask about hiring a a finance director. So Kirsty it's been a pleasure to talk to you as we wrap up are there any kind of final words of advice that you've learned from your own lessons that that you would urge founders and also people working in startups to think about in terms of getting the people bit right? Oh, that's a big question. Let me, let me think about that. Do you know, I'm going to give a bit of a cheesy answer because this is what I uh, genuinely think about every day and I make sure I think it every day. And that's that you're not going to get it right all the time, but that's okay. And remember to enjoy the journey. 
just enjoy it enjoy who you're working with if it doesn't work out it doesn't work out it doesn't it doesn't matter it's it's what you've learned from that experience and the reason I remind myself to enjoy the journey every day is otherwise it's quite easy for weeks and months to go past and you don't get a chance to lift your head you don't recognize if you're enjoying yourself or not um, and life's too short so just enjoy enjoy the experience Brilliant. And I had had originally had a very profound final question to ask you, and then I forgot it. And you answered it anyway, because I remember what the question was, which was about, we don't always get this right, but we need to factor that in. What do we do? And you've mentioned that. The only thing I would add to that is think carefully about your legals, the way you structure things, and, and think about that from the assumption that it's probably not going to work. Because if you go into all of these things thinking that you're going to get it right first time and it is going to work, you're not going to do yourself, the company or your employees any favours. So, wow, thank you for telepathically answering the question that slipped my mind. (laughs) (laughs) It has been a pleasure to talk to you, Kirsty. Thank you for joining me as this week's entrepreneur, Agony Aunt. As ever, you can submit your question at vickybrock.com slash podcast.